look in our copy of the Word of the Lord this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you want to follow along in the Bible that's located in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 1053. John chapter 1, or 1053, if you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you. And uh, I know we just stood, so I'm going to invite you just to stay seated as uh, we read this text. I'll read it aloud, and you just follow in your copy of the Word this morning. And the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's go together in prayer. Father, I am in my flesh insufficient and weak, or there's no way I can bring all of the powerful and amazing truths that are found in this passage. But Lord, we thank you for the witness of John. We thank you that he was so faithful to your calling to point us to the one whom you have chosen, your chosen king, your only son, whom you sent to the world to take away our sins. And Father, if we come here today for any other reason other than to hear of that testimony, may you purge our hearts and may you purify us for the next time that we have. It's never enough time. Lord, we ask you to clear our minds and hearts, forgive us of any false thoughts or attitudes that would hinder us from hearing your word this morning. Father, guide us and wash us with the word that we may know you more and be witnesses for you in this season. It's in your name we pray, amen. I think um, one of the biggest problems in churches today when it comes to evangelism is that we just don't do it. Uh, We don't do it for various reasons, um, some of which are understandable, although I don't think any of them are really that good. I heard someone say one time that an excuse is what you give when you don't have a good reason and so uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's, uh, there's a lot of excuses, I, I don't know. But for those of us who, who do regularly try to share our faith and those of us who do try to spread the gospel around, I, I think among those there is another problem, one of the biggest problems, is that we often make assumptions about what the person we're talking to knows. And there are assumptions based on our backgrounds, there are assumptions based on what we think other churches and most churches teach. We assume that they know some basic things about God and about salvation and sin that, that they don't often know. 
and some of the most modern and most supposedly innovative uh, evangelism strategies today are oddly out of date at this point. And so I came face to face with this with a, in a couple of times in my life, but but one of them was when we were planting the church in Denver. We were we were planting a church. Kind of our strategy was to focus on this apartment complex we were in. So we were holding a Bible study in our apartment, and we had just got finished singing the Lamb of God. Uh, it's a it's an old chorus. Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, you are the holy Lamb of God. I believe we've sang that before. It's been a while. And after we were done, you know, it's kind of an open format. And so one of the ladies said, why do we call Jesus the Lamb of God? That just doesn't even make sense. You know, and I've heard, I mean, even before I was a Christian, I heard Jesus referred to as the Lamb. And I just kind of assumed that was something that everybody should know. But the truth is, was that she had absolutely no idea. And, and so we're, you know, we're in a time right now that a lot of people are singing a lot of Christmas songs, Christmas tunes. They're hearing it on the radio. They're hearing it in stores where they are. They're, they're familiar with these words. But we oftentimes assume that they are familiar with what they are singing. They, they understand these songs that they have listened to their entire lives. And I can think of no better part of the year that we can really up our ante in evangelism. We can really up our game in evangelism by, by simply asking them, do you understand what you are singing? Do you understand what this song is saying? And so this morning, I want to encourage you to use this season as an opportunity to have some gospel conversations with your, with your friends, with your family, with your loved ones, even your coworkers, if you're able. In other words, to be a witness in this season, and that's why we're going to John this morning, is that we're looking at uh, John's testimony to a bunch of people who were raised in what you might call the, the equivalent of the world's Bible Belt. It was Israel. They had the law. They had all of that. They understood the words, but they didn't really understand the meanings. And so John is testifying to a group just like this. And if you look in chapter 1 and verse 4, uh, excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 8, I think it really summarizes his testimony. It says, he was not that light but came to bear witness of that light. And, and down beginning in verse 19, you can really divide his testimony by those two themes. The first few verses, verses 19 through 28, he's testifying that he is not that light. But then in our text this morning, what we're really interested in is that he is bearing witness to the light in verses 29 through 34. And as John gets into this more, we're going to see that he testifies that we, are, that, that we want to look at that light and that is where we find salvation and then we are to be witnesses of that light. Beloved, all Christians are to be witnesses to the light of Christ and there's no better time of the year to do it. No better time of the year. And so what are, to be, what are we to be witnesses during this season? It's Witnesses to the incarnation. And what do they need to know? I think there are three truths that we see concerning the incarnation this morning. Three truths that we need to witness to, and I'm gonna go through these as quick as I can this morning. There's so much more than what we could say, that what we'd ever have time to say here. 
But basically, we're gonna say that we testify that Jesus forgives our sins, Jesus gives new life, and Jesus is God's son. He forgives our sins, he gives new life, and he is God's son. So let's begin in verse 29. We're to testify this season that Jesus forgives our sin. And how do we do that? John does something in the first chapter that no other gospel writer does. And that he is actually, when you, when you compare this section, the first chapter through about chapter two, verse 11, when, when you look at this, he's actually recording the early days of Christ. Uh, now, we know that John has already baptized him based on his testimony, but it doesn't seem yet that he has actually gone into the wilderness for fasting yet, like we see in the other synoptic gospels. And so what's happening here is that this is really the first seven days of his ministry, and John organizes it around seven days, and, and it kind of corresponds to the seven days of creation, that, that this new creation is beginning in seven days of ministry for Christ. That's a freebie. And Jesus is not necessarily calling disciples yet, but some of his disciples are going to start following him because they're kind of curious based on what John said. And so they're not really called at this point, but, but they're, they're just kind of a curiosity following, if you will. And why are they so curious? They're curious because of John's testimony. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what does that mean? Why, like, like the one in our Bible study, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb? Believe it or not, that's actually quite a controversial topic. We don't know exactly what might be in John's mind here. I think there's a couple of very good contenders, though. There's a couple of places that give us some background, like, for example, Exodus chapter 12, and you see uh, the, the requirements for the Passover lamb. And you remember all of us have read the Exodus or we have seen Exodus movies where the Passover lamb was to come into their home and live for 14 days. It became kind of a part of the family, you will. And then on the 14th day, it was to be killed and the blood of the lamb was to be put on the doorpost. And then when the angel came by and judged the enemies of God, when it saw the blood applied to that household, it would pass over them. And so obviously that's gonna be a really strong contender. But I think we've got another contender in Genesis chapter 22. And I'm gonna invite you to go there for just a moment. Genesis chapter 22, we've, we've talked about this not too terribly long ago. But you may remember that this is the text that is referred to as the binding of Isaac. In fact, the Jews know this as the binding. And in this text, Abraham is because he was told he was given the covenant and part of the covenant was that he was to teach his children righteousness and he failed to do so. And as a result of that failure, the promised seed had to die. He had to be sacrificed. And so Abraham is told by God to take your son, your only son whom you love, by the way, does that sound familiar? That's significant. But he tells him to go and bind him and take him and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And you may remember they're walking along and Isaac's kind of starting to get a bad feeling about this. And he says in verse seven, uh, dad, I see the wood. I see the stuff to make the fire. I see the stuff to make the altar. But uh, where's the sacrifice? And you remember what Abraham said? He 
He says in verse eight, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And you may remember that when Abraham was just about to raise his knife and kill his son in obedience, God says, stop. And Abraham looks in the distance and what does he find? But he doesn't find a lamb, does he? What does he find? A ram. You see, God, see, Abraham was right. God is going to provide for himself a lamb. But on that day, when God withheld Abraham's hand, he did not provide a lamb for the sacrifice, but he provided something else. Why? Because the lamb was still to come. You see? And Abraham's hand was withdrawn from his promised son because later on the father would not withdraw his hand from the promised seed, Jesus himself. And so I think that's a very strong contender here for what John is thinking about. This was such an important uh, passage in the life of Jerusalem. And even in some other places, the Bible catches up on this language and picks up this language. Like, for example, Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8 talking about the suffering servant, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Watch this. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And then it goes on in verse eight. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken not for his own transgression, but for the transgression of my people. You see, it's picking up this language and John is picking up this language and saying the lamb that God promised that he would provide all the way back in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham said as a prophet, God will provide for himself a lamb. John looks and sees Jesus coming and says, behold, the lamb. He is here. And here's why this concept needs to be so clear. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And how does he do it? Like a lamb led to slaughter, he, ta he is taken away by oppression and judgment for the transgression of God's people. And so this is why this, this, is why this needs to be so clear. I was, I was sharing my faith with, I was, I was witnessing to a young lady, this was years ago, and she understood that God was creator. She understood that, that Jesus was the son of God. She was cool with all that. She, she understood that, yeah, I'm a sinner, you know, and yada, yada. Okay, she understood all that. But then I got to the point to where she was going to be judged for her sin, and she started arguing with me. That is not true. That is not true. That, God would never do that. That is not true. That is not true. God would never do such a thing. She just simply could not accept. She argued with me and argued with me and she never did accept the idea that God would hold us accountable for our sins. Why does she have such a problem with that? Because beloved, I think in our culture today, sin is largely defined in really self-centered ways. In other words, when we think, if we think of sin at all, sin is taught as really nothing more than mistakes. 
or is taught as a failure to live up to your true potential. Sin is really just a failure to be okay with yourself, to love yourself, a lack of self-esteem. It is all of those things. We're, we're broken people, and that's our sin. Jesus died to help us become our best selves. He, helped, he died in order to help us live up to our true potential so we can have our best marriages, our best lives now, our best whatever it is. Uh, in the case of the health and wealth, you can have everything you want. Basically, you just have to, you just have to claim it. Basically, Jesus died to empower us to become whatever we want to be and whatever we want to do. That, that is largely the gospel today. And is it any wonder why so many preachers, even in, our, even in our county, so many preachers are not expositing scripture. They're, they're trending toward pop psychology and all of this other kind of stuff. And is it any wonder why so many Christians flock to those messages because I want to be my best life now. I want to have my best life now. Think about that, beloved. If your best life is now, that means you're going to hell. You don't want your best life now. You don't want to be your best self now. And by the way, even if you wanted to, you couldn't. That's not how the scriptures define sin. Scripture defines sin as an offense first and foremost toward God. In fact, David in, in Psalm 51, in his great confession after Bathsheba, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now you say, well, wait a minute. He sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he did. He sinned against her husband. Yes, he did. But David understood that his first and primary offense was against God himself. And because his first sin, his first primary offense was against God, our problem, beloved, is that we must find peace with God. We must be reconciled to God. That's why I love Dr. White on a... On a what night was it we went? Monday. <laughs> uh, that's why I loved uh, Dr. White on Monday talking about, he began with calling Jesus the Prince of Peace and then, and then he went through Romans chapter one all the way to Romans five in that time talking about justification and the big question is, how can we have peace with God? Because beloved, that is the question of all ages. How can we have peace with God? Because God has made the way. God has provided the lamb and he has made peace with those of us who believe. Paul says, for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God has made peace so that they must, beloved, understand that not only that they are sinners, but that our sins make us accountable before God. And when you understand that, you will understand the significance that God has made peace with us. You will understand the significance. It's not, I wish I could just go on. It's not that he's erasing our mistakes. It's that he is forgiving 
our sin. And he is making us right with him. Beloved, you and I can't do that. We're the guilty ones. We can't do that. But God can. And he did. And it's not just that our sins are forgiven, even though that's great, but that would just bring us back to neutral. But God has done more than that through Christ. He has given us a wonderful gift of more than that. He does more. We're to testify not only that Jesus forgives our sin, but we also testify that Jesus gives us new life. Now, let me show you where I'm getting this. Back in John chapter one. In verse 30, he kind of begins, he says, this is, uh, is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And that's speaking of the eternality of Jesus. And we'll come back to that here in just a moment. But I want you to notice that John is testifying to this new life in a couple of different ways. The first thing he does is he gives his testimony. He gives his testimony. He says this a couple of times, but he begins in verse 32, John um, he says in verse 31, I'm sorry, I myself did not know him. And he's gonna say that again in verse 33. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought John the Baptist was his cousin and, and all this. I don't think this means that John just had absolutely no clue who he was. But I think what it means is that John did not understand the full significance of who Jesus is. He, did, he, he knew of him, he was acquainted with his cousin, but he did not really know him. He knew that he was here this day in order to bear testimony, bear witness to the one to whom was to come, but he did not understand the full significance of it. Maybe he thought of Jesus as a kind of, as a new king that was gonna kick out the Romans like all the other Jews did. But then that day comes. He says, he begins in verse 32. He says, I did not know him, but then John bears witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I really like how the NASB translates this because it's not just that he just saw it, but it actually translates it, I have seen. In other words, this is something that has stuck with me. I saw this and I, and, I, and I can see it today just as plain as day as I saw it yesterday. I have never forgotten this. I am testifying to this. This changed my life. And as he goes on, he explains the significance of that testimony in verse 33. I didn't know him again. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Man, there's so much I wish I could get into, but for lack of time, Jesus gives a fuller account of the work of the spirit in John chapter three. Most of us, we just need to turn the page, maybe two, to John chapter three. And the most significant in John three, Jesus is talking with a religious leader that came to visit with him at night, Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to speak with him and there's all kinds of, you know, why did he come at night? You know, is he trying to recruit Jesus or is he really curious? Uh, what, what's he trying to do? None of that's material here. But Jesus immediately tells him, you 
must be born again. Waste no words. And Nicodemus obviously doesn't understand this. He's like, well, how do you do that? And so Jesus comes back in verse five and he says, unless one, watch this, is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Watch this, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, whatever Whatever you produce, whatever righteousness that you produce out of your own flesh, that is flesh and it profits you nothing. But whatever is born in you of the spirit, that is what brings about new birth. And here's what he says. He goes on to, we come to this faith. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again i.e. we are given new life in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter two and verse five. He says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I can't, I can't remember what movie it was. I, I don't know, but it was a line that's always kind of stuck with me because I, I, I guess the sinner in me kind of found it a little funny. But it was one of the lines, the guy, they were talking about the Bible and one of the characters say, you know, I picked up a Bible one time and read it. It said, thou shalt not, so I didn't, I put it away. And, uh, you know, and that's a lot of the way that our culture views the Bible. In fact, that's a lot of the way that some think of Christianity, even those who claim the name of Christ. That Christianity is about keeping rules. It is about keeping traditions. It is about, um, it's about keeping commands, either what we shouldn't do or what we should do, or maybe they think of God as kind of this big cuddly dad in the sky who says, you know, you guys should just be nice to each other. You should be fair to one another, be kind to one another. And, and by the way, call me. You never call me. Call me every now and then. I really wanna hear from you. Call me. And, and that's how a lot of our culture views God. And, but we know better than that, don't we? We know that Jesus came in order that we might have new life. What does this mean? This was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 11. In Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20. God promises that I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I want you to notice walking in his statutes, obeying his commands, that's not absent from the Christian life. I'm not saying that. But I want you to notice the order here is significant because first, God gives a new spirit. Then they walk in his statutes. Then we obey his commands. God gives a new heart first. Then all the other things happen. It's not that we learn how to be better sinners. It's not that we learn how to hide our sin better, which is what many Christians who hold to these views, that's basically what they're doing. They're just disguising it better. 
That's not what we're learning how to do. But it's that we are given a new life through the Spirit of God. It is a new life. We are new creations. And even in our salvation, that Spirit is changing us and conforming us more to be in character with this new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, watch this, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You see what this movie character missed is that all the commands of the scripture reveal God's character to us. And we recognize that we fall short and the Spirit comes and gives us new life. And now we go back to those same commands and realize that each and every one of them reveals what Christ is like and we desire to be more like Christ through them because of who he is and what he's done for us. That's how sanctification works. That is new life. It comes through the Spirit. When you look at the commands and you say, I can't do that, that's the point. That's the whole point. We talked about in Sunday school this morning how the law did not save. In fact, we came across a verb portion, a verb form of the word Torah, and it means to point. That's all the law means, to point. The law doesn't save. It only points to the way of salvation which is only through Christ, only through Christ. So Christ has the power to give us new life and he has sent the spirit to do that. How? Because of who he is. We testify that Christ forgives our sins. We testify that Jesus gives us new life. We testify that Jesus is God's son. Back in John chapter one, verse 34, John says, And by the way, I I wanna make a distinction. John the Baptist, for those of you who may not know, is not the author of our gospel. So there's John the writer, and then there's John the speaker. So John the speaker says, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. How did John know that? Do you remember that day? He says, I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. We, you know, he already talked about, he saw the spirit descending on Jesus as a dove. You remember that, right? But what did he hear on that day? Right. He heard a voice out of heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. How did John come to know that Jesus is the son of God? Because God told him that day. He came to realize the full significance of who Jesus is And so let me just back up for a moment. What does it mean to be a son in this context? What does it mean to be a son? Because a lot of people get this confused. Uh, Cults, for example, will say that uh, one cult in particular says that, that Jesus is the son and that God the father and God the mother had a child. That's what the classical Mormons used to teach. Another cult, the Jehovah's Witness, they say that Jesus is God's first creation. So in that sense, he is the son. 
of God. But none of that's what is intended here. Jesus is the son of God. And that while the son and the father are different persons, they are one in divine essence. They are one God and yet two distinct persons. They are both fully God and yet have eternally existed and two different divine persons. And then of course you throw the spirit in there and you've got three persons, one divine essence. That is the Trinity three and one. And so to be the son of God is to share in the same nature of the father. The Jews understood this. They understand that when Jesus claimed to be the son of God, he was claiming equality with God. And you, if you want to know what the best commentary is, just look for Jewish rocks. Because every time the Jews picked up rocks and want to kill them, you can bet that they understood that Jesus was claiming equality with God, that he is God. But Jesus didn't back down from this claim, and neither should we. Why is it so vital that we are witnesses not only to what Jesus did, but who he is? Does it really matter? Yes, it does. Because a Jesus that is a Jesus other than the Christ of the Bible cannot save you. A Jesus that is a Jesus that is made up by some cult. A Jesus that is a Jesus that is merely a good prophet or a good teacher or all of those things. That Jesus may be a great little sentimental pal, but he cannot save you. Only the Jesus of the Bible can save you. And the Jesus of the Bible is God. And so we need to understand that. Let me show you a text. Look at, look at, uh, look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24. I'll camp out here for a second, then we're done. But Psalm 24. And you all know Psalm 23, right? Look at Psalm 24. The first couple of verses celebrate that the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein, he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. But I'm really interested in verse three. Look what he says in Psalm 24, three. It says, who shall ascend to the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but if you want to live in that earth, if you want to live in the kingdom and domain of Yahweh, you must ascend to his holy hill. And who can ascend to his holy hill? It says in verse four, he who has clean hands, pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor does he swear deceitfully. Now, when I hear this verse, tech, this verse preached most of the time, I hear something like this. Now, little boys and girls, if you want to ascend to the hill of the Lord, then you need to keep your hands clean. You need to keep your heart pure. And don't tell lies. Don't swear falsely. Be good little boys and girls. And you'll ascend to the Lord. That's what I usually hear when this text is preached, even among Baptists. That's what I typically hear. But guys, let me ask you a question. Who in here qualifies for that? Who among you has clean hands? Who among you has a pure heart? Who among you, by show of hands, have never told a lie? 
I expected someone to do it just now. I thought, well, you just did, but you know, we're in that joke. None of us qualify. And so the question is, who may ascend to the hill of Yahweh? Thank the Lord that the psalmist answers his own question. Because look down in verse seven, what does he say? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The king of glory has pure hands, clean hands. The king of glory has a pure heart. The king of glory has not given his soul to what is false or been deceitful. Who is this king of glory? John asked me, who is that king of glory, Randy? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse eight. (laughs) Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Who may ascend to the hill of Yahweh? God himself may ascend to the hill of Yahweh. And when he does, he brings all of us whom he has saved with him. It is Yahweh who has the very righteousness of God. God himself is qualified to enter heaven. God himself is what it takes. God's own righteousness is what it takes. It doesn't matter who you're better than. It doesn't matter who you're worse than. None of that matters. What matters, the only thing that qualifies you for heaven is that the very righteousness of God himself is placed on your account. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for you. I have the very righteousness of God, not because I've earned it, not because I'm good. I'm a terrible sinner, but I have the very righteousness of God because I have a great Savior who died for me and made that great exchange to where my sins were placed on him and his own righteousness was placed on me. Hallelujah. You think you can do better than that? can't. If Jesus isn't God, then his righteousness is not good enough. If Jesus is not God, then we are all doomed to hell. But because Jesus is God, the very righteousness of God is placed on us. Only God can bring us home. That's exactly what Jesus has done. So beloved John demonstrates in his testimony that we testify that Jesus forgives our sins. He gives us new life, that he's God's own son. You know, personal testimonies are helpful. I I think that's great. We saw that John used his own testimony in his encounter with Jesus. Definitely start there, but don't end there. Explain the significance of the testimony like John did. And my prayer is that we will take the opportunity of this season to do that. And so let me just give you a couple, maybe a little couple of conversation starters real quick. How can, we, how can we do this effectively this year? What are some practical ways? You know, I've already mentioned, maybe if you hear someone humming or singing a Christmas song, you might ask, do you understand what that song means? You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of Philip and the eunuch. You know, as he was riding back to Ethiopia, we imagine, and, and he's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip walks up to his chariot and says, do you understand what you're reading? Maybe in the same way, you can follow Philip's example and say, do you understand what you're singing? Do you understand what you're listening to? 
and share the gospel with them. You might ask someone, why, why do you love Christmas so much? There are some people that really, really love Christmas. You know, I mean, like they started in October. It's annoying. But, <laughs> and uh, if you start in October, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> It is annoying. So, um, but, uh, you know, you might, you might ask, why does Christmas mean so much to you? Why is it so special to you? You know, the Lord designated special feast days in Israel precisely to prompt questions so that people will ask, what do these things mean? You might ask, what, what do these things mean to you? And someone who's a little more familiar with the story of Christmas, perhaps ask them, why do you think it was so important that Christ was born of a virgin? Why is that part of the story? Maybe they never thought of why it's so important. It's to show that we can't save ourselves, that salvation must come by spiritual birth, by miraculous birth, and, and Christ was miraculously born of a virgin. Do you have that miraculous birth? Here's how you can have it. You know, just, just conversation starters like that. Just a few suggestions. But beloved, take advantage of this season. It's the one time of year that people are listening to songs that contain amazing truths. So take advantage of it. Show them, show them the gospel through whatever it is that they're singing. What do these traditions mean? We're about to partake in communion and one of the purposes of the means of grace, the ordinances are are that they are to prompt questions. You know, two of my three kids were saved by watching communion and started asking questions. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. And so this morning, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I, I invite you, don't partake with us because this is an ordinance for believers. But I invite you to watch and just watch the symbolism and watch what it means what does it mean to take Christ in by faith, to make him part of your life, to make him your life? What does it mean to be sustained by Christ, by faith in Christ and the gospel? That's what this, that's what this ordinance, the sacrament is all about. It's about viewing Christ and Christ crucified. And so as we prepare, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment and I'm just gonna ask you, the, the scriptures say, to examine our hearts. I'm just gonna ask you for one moment as our, as our servants begin to make their way down here, prepare for the supper. If you are here and you are a non-believer, we want you to know that you are invited to observe what we do. We want you to ask questions. We want you to ask what's going on here and what these things mean. But we would ask you not to participate because this is something that is for believers. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of our church, but you are a believer in Christ, baptized believer, we do invite you to partake it with us. You do not have to be a member of our local church to do so. And so... Just invite you now for just one moment to examine your hearts and whatever sin you may need to confess. Let's do that now. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. I pray that that is our prayer this morning as we come into this holy time.